recorded at Get a Grip Studios in Toronto, Canada. Get a Grip Management production and in association with the Get a Grip on Lighting podcast. Presented by the National Association of Innovative Lighting Distributors, the National Lighting Bureau, the Illuminating Engineering Society, and of course, the International Dark Sky Association. This is Starving for Darkness. I know you're hungry, folks. I know you're starving. Starving for Darkness with Jane Slade and Michael Colligan coming up real soon. But before we get into that, it's not always and every day that you come across something magical. That's right. I'm talking about Evluma, Greg Eric. Evluma, E-V-L-U-M-A dot com. Talk about a company who's committed to the darkness movement that we're pushing here with this podcast. Area Max, it's utility-grade LED luminaire designed for residential street lighting, parking lots, security lighting, and area lighting applications. What's nice about this thing is that it has type 5, type 3, and dark sky friendly lens options on it. Surge protection better than anyone, 20kV, 10ka, and lightweight housing, easy toolless access, great fixture, replace anywhere up to a 250 watt HID with this thing. Check it out. Whoo, the magicians down at Evluma coming in hot again with another great dark sky ready product. Go to evluma.com. That's right, Greg, evluma.com. Check them out. Hello, listeners and darkness lovers. My name is Jane Slade. I'm here with my co-host, Michael Colligan, for another episode of Starving for Darkness. Starlight is the birthright of all living things, and that is why we are so happy to have our guest here, Andy Krejci. Andy has been involved in astronomy education and outreach for over 25 years, so I feel like you have so much information and a wealth of knowledge to share with us on the subject of astronomy and education on the topic. We start every episode with the same request of our guest, Andy, which is to please tell us about a dark sky experience that you had that left you feeling like a human on earth, like you are small, like you are infinitesimal. So please share that with us. Yeah, how long do you have here? Enough well, time for you. <laughs> yeah, good. Um, yeah, well, um, I was born in the Midwest in Indiana. My family was living in Kansas City, Missouri. And when I was going into first grade, that summer before first grade, um, our family moved from Kansas City, Missouri to Tucson, Arizona, where IDA was born, coincidentally. And um, I just remember being out in the desert and looking at this star-filled sky and just being in awe of that. So that was kind of the inspiration for uh, me going going down this path. Um, you know, more often than not in astronomy, um, you know, you plan for these great astronomical events. This is kind of a running joke among astronomers. And, you know, you get a cloudy night. And, um, you know, one thing that happened shortly after we, we moved in 1966 and one of the well the greatest recorded meteor storm of all time so meteor showers happen on a regular schedule but 
every 33 years, the Leonid meteor shower in November uh, takes place on my wife's birthday, actually, November 17th. Um, there's a lot more meteors. This is having to do with the stream of particles along the orbit of a comet. So um, in 1966, there was a group of amateurs that went up to Kitt Peak, which is about 50 miles away from Tucson, and they recorded uh, something like 150,000 meteors per hour that they wow. they saw during this like 45 minute period, and um, you know, so it's like something like 40 a second. Um, if you know the the song "Stars Fell on Alabama," that old jazz um, song standard, uh, that's about um, the meteor meteor storm of the Leonids. I think the one in 1833, maybe. Um, so I miss that because I was asleep. I was in first grade. I, <laughs> I, I miss that. So, um, but you know, I'd get books out of the library and remember this kind of nondescript blue book of the planets that I would, you know, have all the time. And I heard about this comet, Comet West, that was coming along. I think that was 1970, so I would have been um, 11. And so I set my alarm to get up at five in the morning because it was near the sun. So you could either, you know, when it's near the sun, you can either see it in the evening or the morning. So this was a morning apparition. And I set my alarm and slept right through it. So <laughs> there's many more that I've missed. But fortunately, uh, you know, I'm 62 now, so I've, I've had quite a few um, great encounters. You know, um, I live here in Santa Cruz on the central coast of California and Monterey Bay area. So we're basically straight. Um, straight west of Yosemite. So I've been to the Sierra a lot. So on uh, the, the, the Eastern Sierra, I've seen Comet Hale Bop in the sky and got a wonderful picture and just kind of wonderful experience seeing that. That was in the mid nineties. Um, uh, there was a kind of go-to place down there in kind of Southern California, really, uh, Red Rock Canyon. There's many Red Rock Canyons, but this is Red Rock Canyon State Park in um, Southern California. And yeah, there I've seen several things. I mean, uh, we went there for the Leonid meteor storm three years later after I was in first grade. So this is 1999. And, uh, you know, you've heard the, the expression meteor shower. So mm -hmm. meteors, when you go out and see them, you don't need a telescope. You can see them all over the sky. They're just random. And, um, but if you trace them back, they go to a, a central point where the, you know, it's called the radiant, you know, where they appear to come from. And that's how you know they're associated with that storm. And I'd stayed up all night, seen quite a few, nothing like 150,000 an hour. Uh, but the sun was coming up in the east. It was starting, not, sun wasn't coming up, but dawn was rising. So it was getting light over there, but it was only dark in the west. And the radiant was uh, up in the west, but the only place you were going to see uh, meteors was where they were coming straight down, and that was towards the west, mm. and it looked like rain, um, seeing these these meteors come down. So I saw that same same place, just random luck. We had an astronomy trip uh, for planned for Red Rock Canyon State Park, and a few days uh, before it happened, there was a, a big coronal mass ejection, this big solar storm that shoots out particles towards Earth. And very predictably, um, you know, auroras uh, or auroral activity is much higher once these particles hit Earth. And it takes a few days. 
because they're they're traveling much slower than the speed of light, obviously, because they're, they're actual particles. And I'd forgotten about it. I was just I was working a you know day to day job, and it's like just okay, get my work done, and we'll we'll go out and do some astronomy. And we got there on a Friday night, and we're sitting around the campfire because um, we didn't do astronomy typically the first night, so we had a campfire. And then this guy said, "What's that red glow up towards the north?" And then it hit me. It's like, oh, right. So I don't really like the term bucket list, but I've always wanted to see the aurora and figure out, figure out I'd be mm. figured I'd uh, you know be freezing my butt off in Alaska or Manitoba somewhere, you know. And here it was, Joshua trees and this you know tremendous auroral display with people hooting, hollering around the camp campground. It it was bizarre because it was so quiet. You, it, would, it deserved some, you know, dramatic orchestral soundtrack. It was so beautiful, um, but here it was just silent. So, but most people uh, can't pass on the movement, the flittiness of the northern lights. It, that there's like a flittiness to it. You know, when you watch it, it right. moves. And right. if you haven't seen the northern lights, it's something to see because there's it, it kind of flows and moves as you watch it. Um, and, and when I saw it, it was kind of moving and flowing. Um, you could see it. It wasn't, was it just a glow that you saw or could you see like the... Oh no, yeah, it started off as a glow and then it gradually took over the um, entire sky. Hmm. And, um, you know, I think that particular storm, auroras were viewed down as far far south as northern Mexico. So it was a, a pretty dramatic display, yeah. Um, yeah, and just totally unexpected, just out of the blue. Uh, I, I think black. you bring up a really interesting point, though, Andy, which is that these events, even if light pollution wasn't a factor, they're very lucky events to come across because you have to be in the right place and time and there has to be no bad weather. And so, you know, it all sort of has to come together and we're making it so much less likely with light pollution, which is obviously the conversation of the show. But I think the other side of it is that when you do experience an astronomical event like this, that there isn't a luckiness that is so moving about it that you got to see the Aurora Borealis in Joshua Tree. Because I have seen the Aurora maps and they are you know, surprisingly south, but they're not like they happen all the time there. So it's, it's something that you, you will remember because it was so extraordinary to be able to see them at such a low latitude. So, um, and then just all of the events of being a kid and being asleep and, and not quite getting it. And, and so I think that there is something that's very lucky about trying to capture one of these events um, and to see it. And it, it's, um, a reverence that we don't get to hold very often because we're kind of blinding our view in general. So it's a fascinating encapsulation. Do you have any more anecdotes you want to share on this topic? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I'm, yeah, I mean, <laughs> the first um, total eclipse I saw was an annular eclipse. And these are the ones that happen when the moon is further away in its orbit. So it's not large enough to cover up the sun. And so yeah, there's there's luck involved with weather, but you know, you can plan for these things, and that's I mean, that's what astronomers do, amateurs especially. Is you know, it's like they'll you know mark it on their calendar years years in advance. So I was up by Mount Lassen, and 
um, you know, the it's kind of like the eye of God staring at you when there's this weird ring of fire. It's what they call it, ring of fire eclipse. And I just got this um, kind of feeling of almost terror in the pit of my stomach because even though I know in my head, oh yeah, the sun's lining up and the sun and the moon are lining up and, and this is what's happening. I was thinking, you know, if you were some poor shepherd 900 years ago and you looked up and saw that, you would lose it. I mean, yeah, I mean, it, it, this is, doesn't, it just didn't look right. It didn't feel right. It was just, you know, something's wrong here. And, you know, you have all these stories throughout history of, you know, the, the dragon eating the sun and, you know, a portend of bad things to come. And I, I really kind of got that on some sort of uh, gut level. And so I saw that one before I saw my first total solar eclipse, which was in, um, 2017, the great American eclipse that went from Oregon, you know, down to South Carolina, I think it was all across um, the United States. And, um, and that was beautiful. But I, yeah, somehow I, I didn't get that same, that same feeling um, somehow. But yeah, it, it was an extraordinary event. We had cows next to us, and they started going in their barn. Uh, and, wow. and the wow. weather was strange. Um, you know, you could feel a cool breeze, you know, um, 45 minutes before it even happened. So, yeah. So, um, you know, powerful stuff. And, you know, I guess the last example I'll give you is the most recent one. So I'm trying to assist Pinnacles National Park, which is um, fairly nearby here, become certified as a dark sky park. So I had... Um, a meeting to, to go to there. So I arranged it for the evening of this uh, lunar eclipse or the day after. So I, I camped there and, you know, a lunar eclipse, you can see it from the city. So, you know, you know, it's not something you have to go to a dark sky site for. Um, but, you know, and that's kind of the mantra that you hear. So that's kind of the mantra in my head. And I go and we get up at 3.30 in the morning, we're sitting in our beach chairs and we're watching this thing happen. And then very slowly and dramatically, as the moon gets dark, duh, all the stars come out. And oh. you're not going to see that. And the last time I saw it was on the beach in Santa Cruz. And, you know, I, I didn't get that effect. And there's these subtle little things that you, even someone like me, you know, will forget about and then it's you know kind of gobsmacks you when you when you uh, see it and experience it so right there you got to see the the night sky shift and actually this is a dream of mine to make the winter solstice in the northern hemisphere a dark sky uh hour um because it's already the darkest night and so right. to be able to advocate and so listeners now if you want to help us start this Let's make the winter solstice a dark sky day where we all turn the lights out from eight to 10 and see if we can see the difference. But you were able to see that by a, a factor of the moon and um, celestial bodies getting in the way right then and there to see that crisp difference in light. I actually have a quote here from uh, Yasunari Kawabata. Um, and he said, the true joy of a moonlit night is something we no longer understand. Only the men of old 
when there were no lights could understand the true joy of a moonlit night. And I think that's fascinating that, you know, we, we kind of lose that arc of the full moon in our cycle of understanding of the world and, and how different a full moon would have felt if you truly didn't have light supporting you all the time. Right. Uh, and so I just think we are, our conception of light at night is just vastly different than it used to be. Mike, you wanted to jump in with a point. Yeah, uh, can I just get that? Yeah. I just want to write yeah. that guy's yeah. name down Go again. <laughs> well, oh, oh, sure. Well, it's, yeah. Yasunari Kawabata. I'll send it to you. Okay. Yeah, I was just, I was thinking about, um, the uh, the meteor showers that you're talking about, and I was just going to say that that that's not a simile, like they actually are showers. Like I was looking at the pictures that you can see, and a and you can see these. There's illustrations, and there's also some photos of when these things happen. And there's a lot of meteors falling. It's actually unbelievable to see something like that. So a meteor shower is there. You're actually talking that that's what's happening, and not it's like well, there's a lot of meteors. There's a 150,000 an hour is a, is a heck of a lot of meteors actually. Yeah. That's a lot yeah, of meteors. That, that's remarkable. <laughs> but the, the you know the point that I was going to make about these these sort of spiritual um uh events that occur at night in relation to the the sky and the stars and the moon it's not when you when you delve into this it's very easy to understand why our ancestors thought God was up there. You know, and that these events, like there's the, the, these events that happen to them, it would naturally happen to every human over the course of a regular life. You would see meteor showers and lunar eclipses and beautiful starry nights and the aurora borealis, and you'd you'd have this constant energy and message coming at you from the sky. You can totally understand why they would come to the conclusion that that's where the creator is. Of course, he's there. He's yeah. sending us messages right. all the time. <laughs> it's you know before you know if you're not in you know if you you haven't learned science you're you're in, living in a tribal uh, you know hunter gathered environment even you know even you know the rudimentary hunters um, sorry farmers in the beginning with no artificial light of course that's exactly what it's they would believe. Astounding! It's mysterious. Yes. It's powerful. Yeah. Why not? Yeah, it's interesting so, that you brought up uh, this Japanese quote because. In the presentations I give, I'm, I'm kind of a fan of history, and I like going back in time and telling people, okay, well, here's a couple people that saw this as an issue, you know, 100, 200 years ago. And one of them is a, a Japanese novelist, or was a Japanese novelist, um, Junichiro Tanizaki, and he wrote this little short essay, you know, you can, you can read it in one sitting, um, called In Praise of Shadows. So oh, yeah. part of his history, I have that on my desk. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's great because, um, you know, he was, he was born around the, the turn of the 20th century. And um, I guess early in his life, he kind of was interested in Western culture and kind of um, intrigued by it. And then later on, he kind of did a, a 180. And he just said, no, we're, we're losing all, all our Japanese culture to, to uh, Western culture. Everything's getting Westernized. And um, this, this book is just, he just has these wonderful descriptions of, you know, light bulbs, you know, and he describes them as 
you know, balls of fire, you know, they, they have a bunch of them where, where one would do the trick, you know, they, they have many of them and describes the subtleties of some aspects of Japanese culture, like um, gold threads and kabuki costumes that were meant to be seen in low light. And, you know, you got the shoji screens in the homes and the middle of the home was meant not to have a lot of light. And, you know, seeing these things in in those situations is much different and i think he goes on about you know you'll go to a museum and see one of these costumes with the gold threads and they'll have you know spotlights blazing on it and it looks gaudy but um but yeah seeing seeing it and and realizing that you know well I, you know we go on about you know um scotopic vision you know uh, what you're allowed to see in those circumstances is is something people don't experience anymore it's so true and and so you know part of the mission of this show is to raise awareness and and educate and i know that you do so much of that education and and as lighting educators we really face the uh the idea that more light is sexier and brighter and more attractive and and we actually just recently had um, a psychologist on the show saying that our visual system is actually is designed to go for the brightest thing. So here we are kind of trying to raise awareness to fight that notion of going for the brightest thing. And so, you know, I want to get into your work as an educator. How did you I know that you fell in love with the dark sky as a child. How did you get into education um, in the astronomical field? Yeah, so I had a just a kind of day-to-day job in a, a food manufacturer. You know, I had kids. I had to, you know, my background's actually in theater. That's what I studied in college. Um, but, you know, I had to get a job. I had kids and, you know, had to have insurance and make a living and all that sort of stuff. But, I, you know, I, I still, you know, really had this interest in this and um you know when my kids were school age you know third grade fifth grade probably um you know they're always asking for parents to volunteer in classrooms so it's like oh yeah well i should i should do something you know you know explain the seasons or explain you know um the planets and so you know came up with on my own like a scale model of the solar system and uh, you know we set it up in the, you know, playground area, you know, let's walk to Venus, let's walk to Earth and and so on. And, you know, not long after that, I discovered there's this organization, the Astronomical Society of the Pacific, which is based just uh, up the road from us, San Francisco, um, 75 miles, 120 kilometers north. And um, they are the, you know, the astronomy education organization in the world. And their their focus is really on, they do a lot of academic stuff, but on hands-on stuff and educating um, informal educators, people that work at museums, um, national parks, um, that sort of thing. And their signature program at that time was Project Astro, where they try to get people, astronomers, whether you're amateur or professional, um, volunteering in schools, just like I was doing. So I took that training. It's like, wow, this is just 
exactly what I need. And yeah, the focus is having kids behave like scientists. So not mm. me going in there and yabbing for 45 minutes and, you know, downloading all my knowledge to them. No, um, have them uh, act like scientists, do little experiments, hands-on activities so they can really um, understand what's going on. So that grew when I ended up taking some astronomy courses because I never had time for astronomy courses when I was doing theater because that was just like a more than full-time thing when I was when I was doing it. And, um, you know, that eventually led to um, part-time work in the planetarium and then I kind of uh, phased into doing that um, um, you know, more full time and um, and then kind of started a portable planetarium business. So they have portable planetariums that you can blow up with air and, you know, you have a classroom, you can take it to the school instead of having them have to do a field trip. Um, so I started a, um, a company doing that uh, and then the pandemic hit. So you know, being in a small enclosed space. Um, sharing air, not the best idea. So actually over the last year plus, I've been actually able to do a lot more advocacy work and kind of get into this while, um, while my astronomy education stuff has been on hold. So um, there's been some overlap, obviously, but, uh, but yeah, and that's so kind of the it, origin story. It sounds like you have a really hands-on approach to teaching astronomy, which is great and I, I think that's so important with kids um and i read mention that you you have certain techniques for communicating about the dark sky um and do you want to share any of those oh about the dark sky itself yeah i mean you know you know like uh, an old saw is oh you have to warn kids about not staring at the sun and it's like no you don't <laughs> kids are smart kids don't stare at the sun you know nobody does <laughs> Right. You know, so I, I try to, um, you know, play up their internal knowledge. You know, it's like, you know, it's, so instead of coming out and say, don't do this, I'm the adult, I'm the, you know, I'm the authority here. I say, you know, hey, how many of you ever stare at the sun? And it's like, yeah, of course you don't. You're smart. You're, you're smart people. You know, you're, you know, you're, you're young, but you're still, you know, you've got some sense to you. So, um, so that and, and. Yeah, um, I'll say surprisingly, but maybe it shouldn't be surprising to me based on these experiences. Um, kids really glom onto this idea of, mm. of dark skies when you, when you tell them. And I think it's kind of ironic. One of the, the worst offenders as far as light pollution and the hardest to do something about is school districts. School districts are their own little fiefdom, so they're not under the city. They they do things their own way, and of course, you know, drive by any school, they look more like prisons these days, and they're all lit up at night. You know, uh, no motion detectors. They're just you know twenty four seven you know glare bombs, and that's just what it's come to in you know our modern society. You know, oh, we got we we can't have people on the school grounds at night, so we got to have lights up all night. So, yeah, we've we've one of our kind of minor um, uh, projects here is uh, we have a middle school that installed some school lighting or some field lighting, sports lighting, and we had conversations about them, and and you know they gave us a courtesy meeting, and after that kind of ignored us and not very receptive and. 
one corner of the field is within 30 feet of a, a state park riparian area with migrating birds and that sort of thing. Mm. And it's it's a newer um, uh, newer installation, so it's uh, one that could be you know dark sky certified as community friendly if it were not for the fact that it was so close to this area you know that that ruled it out right there um but we'd have conversations with them and you know what i think happened is the salesperson sold them on a fancier system that gives them uh what is it level three lighting whether it's just recreational it's just you know guys getting together to pay, play soccer and they want to rent out the field and they want to do it um, at night uh, as well as um, during the daytime. So, yeah, I mean, um, sales guy says, oh, yeah, you need you need level three, even though there's no spectators ever going to be there because it's just squeezed into this little corner of the field. So, you know, we're trying to explain this to them. But um, as it as it is with a lot of these things, you you got to be way ahead of the curve. You got to know before, you know, as soon as this project is dreamed up, that's when you got to start talking to people. But um, that's not the way the real world works. We find out about these things and they're partway through. And so, um, you know, they've heard the pitch from the sales guy, they've committed the money to it. And so they don't want to change. It's hard for people to admit they made a mistake. Very, very big problem. In with well, and it's hard. It's hard to point out people's mistakes. Yeah, too. no, they they it, just it, don't want to hear it. Um, yeah. They just, you know, they just they have no desire to be told that they made a mistake. And it, this is a, and it's getting worse. That's actually um, been exacerbated by people, you know, um, sort of hustling themselves into you know places on the internet that are confirmation bias friendly. Um, right. You know, lighting has a huge problem with that. And we're just really now, after 10 years, starting to sort it out where it's like, you know, we have to admit as an industry that it wasn't all glory and environmentally friendliness over the last 10 years. The LED boom has put us in Jevon's paradox where because it's so cheap energy wise and the fixtures are so cheap and made in China and they come over here and it's 150 bucks for 400 watts worth of LED, we can use as much of it as we want. And you can, we can light up your field like uh, the Scotiabank place or, or like the, yeah. where the Denver Broncos play. Don't you want that? Yeah, that's what we want. And, uh, NFL player. Yeah. What about the lighting controls? Ah, lighting controls are so fussy. You know, you got to download the app and, uh, you know, we'll just, just leave them on all night. And, you know, it's so cheap. The energy is so cheap. This happens so much in the lighting industry and it's gross. It, quite frankly, I'm disgusted by it. And I'm part of it. I'm disgusted with myself as well. It's so difficult to, if you go in there trying to pitch a dark sky job, you're going to lose for sure to the guy that's saying, no, 5,000K, why would you want to have lower Kelvin temperature? Why would you want not want uniformity? Why would you want cutoffs? Why would you not want more light? It's, it's a very difficult problem to solve because the momentum is all in the other direction, but this show is about fixing that problem, and we, yeah, we well, intend to, we, Andy. We've made a little bit of headroads with the city. Um, Santa Cruz in Santa Cruz. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things our dark side chapter wanted to do is, okay, let's figure out what's, what's the worst lighting we have here and let's start there. Um, 
and there's a a river flowing through town, the San Lorenzo River. You know, we have a Mediterranean climate, so it's not like a glacier fed or anything like that. It's um, it's there, there's not much going on there in the in the summertime. Not not, not much water. There's a lot going on there, but um, but this is a river that used to have a lot of steelhead and coho salmon in it, and um, no more. You know, uh, it's, they're on the endangered species list, and so. Um, we have these bright, bright, very close together um, acorns that they replace with LEDs. And we've done measurements. There's more light coming out as glare into the eyes than it's lighting up the roadway. What's a street light for? It's supposedly for lighting up the street. And of course, it's light coming out on all sides, you know, this, you know, um, textured surface. So it's diffusing all over the place. And of course, it lights up the river. And, you know, lots of, lots of studies have shown us that, um, you know, moss to the flame. I live in a place where we uh, have squid fishermen that go out with these bright lights. You see them out on the bay or on the ocean uh, to attract squid. And, you know, all these studies say, yeah, juvenile salmonids are attracted to light at night and that makes them prone to predation. Duh, right? <laughs> you know, it's, it's so obvious. And, you know, we talked to the mayor and city council, and that got us in to talk to uh, director of public works. And so, you know, you know, what's your plan for lighting director of public works? They don't really have one. They, they probably have, you know, their own uh, suppliers and choose something out of a catalog. Oh, this, this looks good for that. And it's like, and they like the old timey look of these acorns that inspires nostalgia for some. Yeah, but you could do your acorns, right? You can do acorns. Yeah. You can do it right. I mean, even the sponsor yeah. of this show, Evluma, they have an acorn dark sky friendly retrofit kit um, that can it's fully dimmable. It has photo control. I'm just I don't I don't mean to I'm not here to advertise. Yeah. Well, I am. I advertise for Evluma at the beginning, but you can do acorns really well with cutoffs and stuff like that, and you can preserve the look and you can preserve. It. It's not an either or. Um, and right. you know, I I don't well, like that. That sometimes it is. Yeah. But you know, the, the issue, like, how do we, there's so many different angles to take with the dark sky issue, wildlife, human health, um, you know, uh, our, uh, you know, the way things look beauty, these glare bombs, they think they're preserving something. Glare bombs are ugly and offensive. I don't know how we get this across to people. It's like right. you're driving and you see these acorns with 5,000 K light. First of all, an acorn was supposed to mimic a gas light. That's what it's supposed to mimic. In the lighting uh, world, an acorn fixture, how, like how yeah, come? Have, have, how, you, have you seen the uh, the Mary Poppins sequel? No. <laughs> no. Yeah, um, the Lin Manuel Miranda character is a, a lamp lighter, and mm -hmm. you know it takes place in the '30s. And like, wow, did they still have gas lamps in London in the '30s? And so I looked it up, and turns out they did. And I read about the kind of history. They were spaced way, way far apart, and of course they were meant for wayfinding. You had this, you know, tiny little flame in there. This is so you don't get lost in the London fog, right? Mm -hmm. So we're, you know, we're putting in these, you know, bright fixtures in something that was meant for some, you know, total other purpose. Mm -hmm. 
Right, the old one for one replacement when you're taking a previous light source and then putting an LED, it leads to a ton of overlighting. And I'm I'm just curious, Andy, so you've sort of I, I read that you've kind of like had these walking tours with the mayor and or you've had these night walks to try and show how the lighting is really not working and that it's it's yeah. creating harm. And and how successful has that been for you? Well, yeah, so getting to these these bridge lights they they you know about six years ago they put some um lights up along the levee walk on either side of the banks on you know south of you know one certain point and now they're wanting to put some on the north side so we got together with the mayor and the police chief and um this bike group because Officially, this is closed. And, you know, here, here comes another thorny issue. You know, we live in this beautiful area with beautiful climate. We attract a lot of homeless people. And, you know, these lights are up to, you know, to see what's going on there and to discourage, you know, um, bad behavior there. And there's, there's a lot of, a lot, yeah, they, they went up to begin with because there was a murder on the levee between two homeless people. So, you know, and we can go on about safety, but, um, Oh, and we should, I want to get into that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So we invited the mayor and the police chief and these other people and these other environmental organizations that we're trying to team with and said, okay, we haven't put these up yet. Let's compare the experience of walking on this unlit path to the one that's already lit. Because what, what we were hearing is they're, they're putting the same thing in because you know that's what works right uh and yet those existing lights shine down the bank cause shadows all the way down to the river uh riparian area again yeah i mean yeah just the arrogance of human beings is just (laughs) tremendous you know there's a a movement now uh i don't know if you've seen this in the news uh, about the rights of rivers to make rivers actually have rights, like as if they were a human being, and That's and um, I I really love that idea because um, yeah we're we're just arrogant with with everything including light. But anyway, we 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 took these folks down there and explained you know scotopic photopic vision and you know here's what you know what are you experience ask them questions just like I do with the kids right what are you experiencing what's what's this like for you. And, you know, we passed by those bridge, which bridges with the awful glare and they could see the light shining directly in the river. Um, but, you know, we're dealing with bureaucracy here. So um, we got we had a meeting with Public Works. And I think after that meeting with the mayor and the police chief on the river, they put another good word for us. And um, I gave a little impassioned speech and gave a little presentation at a committee meeting, public works commission meeting. And um, they made some um, provisions to, you know, oh yeah, we'll make them 4K instead of 5K. They threw you a bone. They did, yeah. But um, the day after that meeting, we had, um, through one of our contacts, who's, you know, really convected, connected with the environmental organizations, she had sent an email to this guy for NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, which uh, oversees the endangered species. 
and he had seen one of the pictures I'd taken of the bridge lights. And so I was not surprised that we just got thrown a bone, you know, I, you know, and other people said, oh, wow, that's amazing what you got. And okay, it's, it's, it's great comparatively speaking, historically speaking, but it's not what we want, but it's kind of what I expected. Uh, but the very next day, this guy from NOAA sent an email to the assistant director of public works saying, hey, it's been brought to my attention. You have these bridge, bridge lights shining directly in the river. you got to do something about it. And by the very next week, they put up some sort of shielding, internal shielding um, inside some of those acorns, just a few of those. And as far as I know, they haven't done anything else. But it's kind of raised our level of, uh, you know, maybe we should listen to these guys. Um, um, in that respect. So we're find... having a few more conversations and email exchanges with public works now. So, um, and I will say it exists in the Santa Cruz 2030 general plan. So in hmm. the early two thousands, they came up with a general plan and I really want to find out who did this, but they included language about reducing light pollution and having a model lighting ordinance. And it was passed and adopted in 2012. So supposedly, everybody in our city should be working towards these goals set forth in the general plan. You know, of course, when the rubber hits the road, you know, they just got a job to do. They got to do their stuff. And when they put in projects, they say, oh, yeah, yeah, this, this uh, follows, this is in line with the general plan. Um, well, I... I take that language and say, here's what the general plan says. The general plan says we should be looking into what IES and IDA say. Um, you know, do you have any knowledge of what's coming down the pike with, uh, what is it, IES 43? And they have no clue. This is one of Mike's biggest bones. So I'm going to give this over to you, Mike. But the fact that laws get passed and then don't get enforced mm -hmm. um, is is really bothersome um and i i find it funny because it, it sounds you know in your anecdotal uh describing that that there's just this like resignation of oh you know there's no more salmon and there's no more of that other species you mentioned um, Coho, and um, it's just coho salmon or what is it uh, uh, steelhead. steelhead yeah steelhead yeah steelhead oh no big deal you mean that's just that's just what you get you know and it's like Actually, there's a really famous case study right in Redding, California, where they did the lighting for the Sundial Bridge, and it led to a near extinction of the salmon in that river until they redid the lighting. Um, and they knew, they figured out that it was the lighting itself that made the salmon a beacon for the predators to find them. So there's studies very close by showing exactly this phenomenon. And that, it, I mean, we shouldn't be so resigned at the reduction of wildlife species in our rivers. And I completely agree that it's a living thing that has rights. It's not a single living thing. It's a body of living things, but it absolutely has rights. And, and that's why I started the show saying that starlight is a birthright for all living things. We were evolved and tuned to this starlight that we've ripped out of the lives of all living things. So it's a, it's a pinnacle, uh, a pillar of life that we have removed. And who's to say what, what that's going to be uh, for living things in the future when we don't have that 
source of information, not of not even just awe, but just vital information. So I, I think it's absolutely yeah, I mean, true that we were yeah. talking about the moon earlier too, and a lot of what you hear is like, oh well, this just puts out as much as light as the full moon, but that full moon isn't isn't you know every day. It's on a cycle where you only have that peak of the full moon once a month. You know, it's like, right. and, you know, you're dealing with species that have, you know, eyesight a hundred times more acute than humans. You know, it's like, you know, um, yeah, we're, yeah. Uh, selfishness, self-centeredness, um, egotism, you know, as a culture, we're just, um, we just don't uh, think beyond ourselves enough. I don't know about anthropomorphizing rivers. I mean, um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm much... I think I'm, I, while I'm spiritual, when I look at execution, I, I have a pragmatic spirit. Um, I'm, I don't know if, you know, giving, you know, a, a, I'd like to see humans get their rights back first before we um, gave them to rivers. But, you know, I do agree that there's a, a major, major problem with human arrogance, um, with uh, this sense that, you know, I had a guy on the Get a Grip on Lighting podcast, I do another show. And, um, great guy, nice person. Okay. But wait for this. You're going to hear it in a second. Um, um, Jane, he said that, you know, when we're out in sunlight, we're receiving between 5,000 and 10,000 lux at any given time. And so this is really good for our circadian rhythm. And so what we need to do is increase the inside light by th to a thousand lux. Okay. Jane. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that's, I'm with you. A double a paint booth okay and you know like you ever been in a paint booth i've been in many paint booths you know you go in there you, it's actually literally pressure i mean this is you know for paint and so we, we humans especially with light we come up with the ideas and we think that wasted light we think that light spilling everywhere else has no consequences whatsoever um and that there you know nothing could possibly go wrong with sitting in an office getting hit with a thousand lux of electric light what could possibly go wrong with that you know and you just think to yourself like many things could go wrong and we're so arrogant we think we have a solution to one problem we create another problem but more important is that when we actually figure something out we have people that write these things down and they pass laws Okay, or they make regulations, or they put the ordinances out there, and nobody enforces it. And it has actually the opposite effect. It makes any other law that you make down the road meaningless, absolutely meaningless. And, you know, it's, it's the same with these, um, you know, I hate to bring up a controversial topic, but it's the same thing with happening in the United States with all these pledges about racism and inclusivity and equity that all these corporations made back last spring, okay, and they do absolutely nothing about it. It's just a, it's a publicity stunt, you know, oh, guess what, make this statement because then uh, everyone's going to stop worrying about the fact that your cotton comes from China, that Xinjiang region, re region or whatever. And if you just quickly make this statement, everybody's going to forget about all the other stuff you do and then just let it ride for a while and then everything will just go away. Sure. This is how people plan for this kind of stuff. They literally plan for it. You know, even with the, um, when people make these regulations or model lighting ordinances, they, people look at that stuff and they go, nobody knows what the hell that thing says. Well, you know, I'm, I'm working with Pinnacles National Park and one of the near um, cities is uh, Hollister, California, and um, they actually have a lighting ordinance. And um, 
I, it took me a while to find it. And then when I find it, you know, we might be might as well be talking about gas lights because they're, you know, have sodium vapor lights and sure. and stuff. They have these pictures in their model lighting lighting ordinance. And it's so yeah, specific. you're pulling it out. You're blowing the dust off it. <sighs> yeah, exactly. The dust comes off. It. Okay, here it is. No one's ever and, read it. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And the gal I'm working with who works at the National Park um, lives in Hollister and she just laughs every time I mention up that mention that Hollister has a lighting ordinance because it's like, yeah. <laughs> What's well, we point? mean to change that. We actually have a plan. Yeah. I can't say it on because it, it, it's so it's such a wonderful, beautiful plan. Um, so we're going to be uh, working on it on a committee. So we actually have a plan for that. But yeah, I mean, it's very frustrating for a person like you and for in my position where you, you, we've even, I've called, I know who has lighting ordinances now in my area. You call, they have no idea. The inspectors have no idea what you're talking about and they have no interest in enforcing it whatsoever. None at all. What? If you can even talk to somebody, that's the other side of it. We had one success here um, going through code compliance. There was a, a warehouse facility on the far west side of town and it was vacant for a year and again, homeless people hanging out around there and they moved in and started manufacturing these fancy skateboards and um, put up these just glare bombs all around the perimeter. prison yard. And, and um, so um, we wrote them a few nice letters. Um, they ignored it. So, you know, it took, you know, it wasn't me. It was, you know, another member of our chapter going to code compliance and saying, Hey, did they have a permit to put these lights up? No. Okay. So then you go through the process and then they heard from code compliance and they actually had to take them down because they were, um, you know, obvious, obvious light trespass. So fantastic. You know, yeah. Um, but you know, one success story is like, it's, 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 it's it's good to get lifted up by these successes, but it just seems like a drop in the bucket. Yeah, you know, so we're, we're, we're as Starving for Darkness, we're, we're embedded in the lighting industry, Jane and I. She's a lighting designer. I know sometimes you don't like me calling you that, but I, we, she's an advocate for darkness. But um, with, a, with a secondary, sometimes she does lighting design every now and then. Um, I'm a lighting distributor, and I also lighting, own a lighting contracting company. So we are working in the background with the industry to kind of make this happen. But I think... Over lighting public spaces and areas makes the homelessness problem worse, not better. I would argue that, um, and what, whatever your take is on the homeless, that that that's a whole other can of worms you can open up. Um, yeah, I mean, there, well, I you know what I would say is that um, certainly the homeless people would sleep better. That's the first thing. Um, if you weren't shining prison light level lighting on them all the time. Um, well, it's it's funny because some of them choose to camp out right under those lights I'm sure. describing on the bridge because Absolutely. they feel safer. Yep. So. Yeah, I mean yeah. there's a there's a what what you're doing and you know I have a theory it's unproven it's just a theory, okay? But if you look at videotape of the a lot many of the um uh you know uh oh, did we lose them? I think we lost them. Oh. You there? There you are. I'm here. Okay. So if you look at videotape of some of the um the protests that, you know, turned into riots later on at night, you look at them and you're like, is it daytime or nighttime? 
where this is going on because the street lighting is absolutely so bright like you can't you 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 think like it must be is it date how come it's so bright how come you can see so clearly that's a new phenomenon those are that's a phenomenon of using led lights replacing hps okay with max uniformity so you like the level of difference between light levels between lights is actually quite low. So if it's 40 foot candles here, it's 37, 36, 34, and then it's 40 again or whatever. It, it, it doesn't dip a lot. And so people, the police think it's safer because they can see everyone, but they don't realize that, the, hey, guess what? Other people can see you too. And so they, there's, there's like, I, be, I believe that I would love to see a study where cities when they wanted people to go home were able to warm their street lighting and dim it very slowly and there's a lot of information from the lighting industry pnnl especially about queuing about using queuing through lighting to tell people to do something and they know that when you're in a hospital and you dim the lights and warm them you don't have to tell people to go home at, at the end of visiting time they do it on their own and I think by having these bright lights, we're telling people, hey, man, it's party time. Stay here. These lights are on. The lights are on. Stay. I think that is a real phenomenon that we've created with the LED lighting projects we've done. And I, I, I don't know how to turn it back. I don't know if we, if we can in the short term, but I think we can in the long term. We need to study for that. We need someone to study the impact of high Kelvin temperature white uniform street light at night and does it make things less safe is it less safe not is it not safe or whatever or is it does it actually increase criminal behavior does it cause people to become more violent at night um you know i think there's something to that and i and i don't know the answer but i suspect that there, the answer will be it does and we need to cut them off dim them down and warm them up yeah, yeah. i've been spending a lot of time at my local lighting store, um, you know, trying to find um, appropriate fixtures to use at um, the national park. And yeah, yeah so well, Andy, actually, I want to jump jump in for while you're talking about that. Yeah. You're talking about Pinnacle National Park, and so Pinnacles, you yes. are actually oh, Pinnacles, Pinnacles, and so you're actually working to make that a dark sky place, correct? Dark sky park, right? Dark sky um, park. Ideation. So I. Yeah, I want to illuminate that for our listeners, I guess, pun intended, um, just about the process that you're undertaking, because I think they're, you know, for all of how cynical we can get in the arrogance of humans, and it is truly annoying, I think we can all agree. On the flip side, you're actually working on a project um, through certifying this to be a dark sky place. This, so what's that process like? What are you doing to darken the environment? Um, I, I really want to dig into this because that, that is part of the solution. Yeah, I, you know, and I, I will, you know, I think what Michael's talking about is, is even more important because, you know, I, I give these presentations and I show a picture sometimes, my last slide, of uh, Martha. Martha was the last passenger pigeon who was in the Cincinnati Zoo for the last, uh, you know, 10, 15 years of her life and, you know, dropped dead in 1914, you know, so um, I don't want dark skies to be, oh, let's, let's go to a national park so we can see a dark sky. You know, it's the same idea. Let's go see the passenger pigeon at the zoo, you know, right. <laughs> you know, I, and, and to be fair, um, 
Dark Sky Park certification has a lot to do with education. So I think that might be even more important than than getting the the, the lighting right in the dark. Well, getting the lighting right at the Dark Sky Park will give people an example of what what they can do at home. And what I'm finding out is, you know, I'm dealing with the bureaucracy here. There's a movement to do this in all the national parks, which is great. So, um, you know, I don't know how many hundreds of, you know, dark sky parks are certified yet, but most of them are, you know, kind of in the Rocky Mountain area where it's already dark. So um, good, preserve that, but really give people the tools so um, they can go back and do it in their community. So that's kind of my my most important takeaway as far as the process i can i can tell you about it's it's very frustrating to find uh low lumen dark sky friendly um fixtures um it's there's not a lot out there that I you're can telling me i'm a lighting distributor um yeah i have yeah. Like, dozens of dark of vendors okay um evluma has has uh, has done a good job in promoting and everybody's sort of expanding this section. But you know what? This has to happen at the industry level across the board. And that's what we're working on with Starving for Darkness and with the National Association of Innovative Lighting Distributors. We're starting this movement and we all need to get behind it. And, you know, I I don't know how to say this, but I'm it makes me angry, you know, like, but we can't get cynical because... Um, cynicism is like arrogance's older brother. Like you, you, you get to cynicism through arrogance because you get smashed from your arrogance so much. Eventually you become cynical. That's like the, that's what happens to arrogant people is they become cynical when they get older. Um, and so we can't be cynical. We have to work, but how much, what you're saying about the park, I think your frustration is correct in that, you know, you're working so hard to create a pinnacles national park. And the meanwhile, there's light glare bombs going up everywhere in every city and town across the world at a, at a, at a clip that is um, not possible to, like, the boats of loads of light fixtures are coming from China. And they're right now, they're on the water. The orders are in to make the next batch. And it's like, well, we worked so hard to get 400 fixtures installed at Pinnacles that are dark sky friendly and 400,000 arrive from China that aren't or made in America right. that aren't. And the, the incremental improvement is not going to help. And I, that's the frustration. There has to be an industry-wide acceptance and movement. All the big companies have to join the movement. I'm talking about Hubble, Cooper, Signify, GE, um, Cree. Like, you guys got to get off your pants. You got to stop looking behind you and saying, well, then that means we screwed up everything. Yeah, you did. Actually, we all did. But it's time to just acknowledge it and let's kick off the biggest lighting boom in the history of lighting booms because everything's in play now. All the fixtures out there are going to have to be changed if we all get behind this. It's exciting for lighting yeah. people. It's not a bad thing. It's not a guilt trip. It's time to get excited. Yeah, no, I, I, yeah, I think that's great because, you know, just to go with the logic, it's like, okay, we just have a whole bunch of dark sky parks and that's the only place you can see a dark sky. That's, that's, that's not a solution. Jane Slade won't so, like that one. Nope. <laughs> well, well, I, I mean, I, I think we can see the stars. It's Cape. Right. What were you saying, Go Andy? Oh, well, I, I think like it people. is. Be curious about your backgrounds and how you guys got into what you're doing. 
um, because I've listened to your oh. podcast before and I've never discussed. And, you know, it's kind of something I'd like to encourage, you know, young people, you know, I'm doing astronomy education and, you know, a lot of people think, oh yeah, you know, you know, learn STEM and have people be astronomers, but you know, yeah, we need lighting designers. We need people to sell good lighting fixtures too. So I'm, mm -hmm. I'm kind of curious about that. Well, it all started for me with an empathic hunch. I, we spent all this time thinking and talking about human centered lighting, human centric lighting. And I just was looking around being like, Hmm, what about wildlife? And it was a pitch to light fair to speak at the conference in 2018. And um, that the development of that talk changed the trajectory of my life and the trajectory of my career. Um, and I want to say that, you know, with the dark sky places, you know, my great hope is not just that people will only go to these dark sky places to see the night sky, but that if light is addictive, then darkness is addictive. That if you've seen, you know, a one RGB color changing light installation, you've seen them all. And that it pales in comparison to the beauty of a fire underneath the night sky every single time. And so I hope that by, you know, informing listeners here that you can apply to have a dark sky park in your region if you advocate, if you do the education to bring the light levels down. It's very hard on the East Coast because we're already so high. But this is all within our hands to do. And so my great hope with Dark Sky Parks is that we feed the addiction of darkness and show the beauty there. Mike, do you want to, I mean, I'm not sure where your Dark Sky story starts. I know where our story started, but where did your Dark Sky story start? Well, I mean, uh, I'm Canadian. And so Canada's, other than the 100 miles, Canada's kind of like Chile on Argentina, but Chile's the Pacific Ocean. Canada has like most of its land up there, but nobody lives there. So most of that land up there is dark sky. There's not even roads in most of it. So I've had the, my brother was a float plane pilot. So I've had many occasions being up north around fires and incredible stars, northern lights, so many times in my life. And then I met you and we were at an IES convention. He's like, yeah, most people don't have access. Yeah, 20, most people don't have access to that. And then I thought, you know, gosh, you know, who could fix that? And, you know, I started looking into the IDA and, you know, I, I, um, I, I find, and you could correct me if I'm wrong, I found that the IDA's relationship to the lighting industry has been less than cooperative, not with the both of them. They've kind of been standoffish with each other over the years. And um, I felt like, you know, it was time for the lighting industry, for the grassroots, the distributors to start saying, make different products, um, you know. And to train distributors to talk to consumers and contractors about this kind of thing. And I was thinking about it. And then, um, you know, uh, I remember Jane. And then I said, let's start a podcast. And we'll try it out six. And and then we just went from there. And now it's turned into a whole movement. There's all manner of things going on in the background. Um, with my the association I run and the board is really, the board of Nailed is very aggressive in this space. They are excited and hungry. They're doing a lot of things to um, move this forward. The only way this is going to happen on a mass scale is if the lighting industry changes the paradigm that we're not just selling lighting, we also provide darkness. That is fundamental to the paradigm of the lighting industry. It's not going to be the lighting industry anymore. It's going to be the lighting and darkness industry. 
Those two things have to come together. And so anybody that sells lighting has to also be able to sell the preservation of natural darkness and not for astronomers. I think astronomers are part of the problem. This idea that the astronomers want dark skies. Who cares about them? Actually, it's for our health. It's for the wildlife. It's to preserve our relationship, our spirituality. There's all manner of different reasons for this. And Jane and I are hell-bent on, on, on making the case for it. Yes, yeah, and that's I... one of my my main goals is actually bringing this to the person that is not in the lighting industry, that is not an astronomer, that doesn't know about dark sky parks. In fact, my whole Instagram account is really bringing the idea that darkness heals. So, in fact, that's what I say when you come to my page, Anatomy of Night, darkness heals. And I talk about the importance of darkness in a 24-hour cycle for our psyche, for our bodies, for the way that we meet the world. And it's been, it's a lost art, the idea that darkness is meaningful. And so that's what I am trying to bring to people to support dark skies, because I don't think dark skies is enough. I think it's far from enough in terms of selling what, where we need to get to dark skies. People don't know what they're missing. So it's not a great selling point to the average person. And amen, yeah, amen, just... sister. <laughs> When I come to meetings with officials, I don't even bring up astronomy. I bring up, you know, environmental, you know, human health, those sorts of things, because, you know, you don't, they already think you're a crackpot. You don't need to feed that at all. No, you can just uh, say this, okay? Think. So you've obviously heard of human-centric lighting, which is basically exploding, okay? So the idea of, you know, so all, here's what I'll tell you. All we know, I'm the host of the Get a Grip on Lighting podcast. I've interviewed all the top scientists. We know that we can hurt people with light. Okay? We know that. We can do that for sure. But can we actually improve their health? Well, you know what it turns out? The only way you can improve people's health is to with through lighting is to help them sleep. That's the only thing. Every other benefit that they talk about with human-centric lighting is directly related to improving someone's sleep. All the other benefits, more alertness, feeling better, better mood, all those are extensions of sleeping better. That's it. How do you help people sleep better? Start with darkness. Yeah, and just kind of the light, the dark, the yin, the yang, just really kind of getting that kind of global perspective. And, you know, for me, working in astronomy, that's what's so healing about astronomy is stepping back and getting this cosmic perspective and trying to communicate that to other people, um, you know, instead of just, you know, having tunnel vision and not realizing, oh yeah, this, that school looks like a prison now. And I, you know, <laughs> not even noticing that. I think um, there's an effect between, um, outdoor lighting at, and, and, and that and lighting and human behavior. I think if you, if you make it feel like a prison, it is a prison. Like that's what right. a prison is about how you feel. <laughs> you feel right. like you're in jail when you're in jail. If you make people feel like that, they'll behave like that. I think it's so important. Yeah, totally. Well, and term that one of our fellow chapter members came up with that feel free to, to use it. It's not copywritten. And that's weaponized lighting, you know, and we oh, yeah. see that all around. I don't want homeless people here. I'm going to put up a light. And that's one, one thing I'm going to try to do is, you know, the city does put up street lights and they have a purpose and they know, yeah, we want even lighting here. And then you drive by this bank and they put a wall pack, you know, you know, 10 feet from the curb, you know, that shines in the eyes of drivers, that's not 
that's not safe. And that's another thing. That's another way I kind of flip this. Um, I say, you know, hey, that lighting isn't safe because, you know, everybody thinks, oh, yeah, darkness is, is unsafe. No, that lighting is unsafe. And so I'll just I'll just name it. So I had a, a moderate success here with, a, you know, the bank where I have my business account. Um, they have wall packs at night. Um, and, you know, there's the ATM there and they have these nice recessed uh, lighting so you can see your way and those have to be white light. You know, you want to see what you're doing. But, you know, pointing out to the, the small little parking lot, three wall packs and just total over overkill. And so I took a picture and went into the bank manager and said, you know, hey, I don't think these are safe um, because, you know, they just blind you walking up. And uh, he was kind of uninterested, but in, in the lighting issue, but he knew, oh, here's a customer that isn't, you know, unhappy. So he, you know, uh, forwarded my complaint to the property manager and um, the guy found uh, a fixture that points down with front shielding and it looks much better. It's probably still overkill how much light they have coming down. Um, if I was a lighting designer, I probably would um, tone it down a little bit, but it's so much better. And I did before and after pictures from the, the same perspective and um, made a little video of it. And it's so dramatic um, and, um, you know, trying to change people's mind with things they can see. If we can't get them out there, which I think, I think that's a really key thing. And we're going to try to do that this fall when it starts getting um, dark a little, have community walks where we can say, you know, see for yourself what, you know, what do you see? You know, what are you experiencing, um, you know, with your own eyesight and your own brain? So. Well, thank you so much for all the education that you're doing, Andy. And I think it's obvious that we could talk to you for a lot longer. So um, this is just the beginning of our conversation together. Tons of notes. Is there any, <laughs> yeah. Is there anything that you want to leave your, our listeners with? I've got another term that you can you can steal that I use every once in a while. I, I use it sparingly, but light privilege instead of white privilege. Mm, yes. I yeah. I think the privilege is to have the darkness. <laughs> well, and that is also a statement that darkness is a privilege as well, because you'll see in a lot of uh, communities that have um, higher income levels, there's actually more darkness For than sure. in other communities and, and yep. that's an emerging topic in the field which is how we use light to treat humans mm -hmm. uh, and make them feel watched instead of seen and there's a lot of great work that's happening on that um so i think it's true that these terms weaponized light i i recently wrote that we need to incriminate light um that it is not innocuous that these terms help to convey in little sound bites because sometimes that's all you get um, and just thank you so much for helping to cultivate this language and bring this conversation out into the world. Um, and Andy, it was a pleasure and we look forward to continuing to talk to you more. Yeah, no, thanks for the opportunity. And I'll, I'll leave you with a quote too, because I, I think this goes back to what we were talking about with those, you know, Japanese people realizing, you know, we're losing part of our culture. You know, there's, there's, you know, it's such a, American thing, you know, more is better and, you know, oh, light is better. You know, I, I went to uh, this little tiny museum in Doylestown, Pennsylvania, and they had these history of light fixtures going back to 3000 BC, you know, and all these modifications. So the wax doesn't drip and you can reuse the wax. So, you know, this is, this is, uh, uh, we're, 
we're up against a lot here, you know, it's part of our DNA that we like light, right? We're, we're diurnal, but, um, but this is uh, our chapter president. Um, he, he puts all these uh, funny little quotes in his signature line, and this, this is his latest one. The secret of happiness you see is not found in seeking more, but in developing the capacity to enjoy less. And that's from Socrates. So again, you know, um, you'll enjoy more if you can enjoy darkness. You know, it's it's less light, but there's something to be to be said for that. And um, and thanks for thanks for pushing this and, and having me on. Thank you. Thank you. You starved. Now you're sated. That's right. I was starving for darkness with host Jane Slade and myself, co-host Michael Colligan. But before we go, we got to tell you about a little magic that we discovered in the National Association of Innovative Lighting Distributors. And I'm talking about Evluma coming out with a massive, awesome, crazy, magical LED Dark Sky Ready Luminaire for the outside, Greg. A-E-V-L-U-M-A.com, the magicians. That's right. And in addition to what we talked about at the beginning, there you have a photo control fail-safe built into the fixture. Come on. And that actually, yeah, that, that replaces the need to have to worry about a photo cell down the road. I love so If your that, photo man. cell burns out, it learns what it needs to do so that it continues to operate as though the photo cell is still working. That's why they're ma it's and magical, then, brother. It's magic. magic. And then on top of that, they have the Connect LED that is a wireless lighting management system. Use your phone, control that thing, get fancy. Oh, man. Evluma is so hot with these products, man. I just love it. Go to EVLUMA.com. That's Evluma.com. Proudendale member, National Association of Innovative Lighting Distributors. Yeah, baby. Come and get it. Bye for now.